Hi everyone, welcome back to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast, episode 57. I'm Cullen McFader, and as per usual, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Clark Coffee. How are you? I'm lovely today, yay! I always use different Oh, that was so sweet. You always come up, yeah, you come up with a new, yeah, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> lovely, that's not, that's one you've not used. Well, I feel so touched. <laughs> Thanks, man. There you go. Yeah, I, have to, but... I have to, you know, I have to keep the spirits up. <laughs> I, perfect. I appreciate it. Yeah, I feel I feel so wanted on this podcast, Colin. Thank you. <laughs> um, and today uh, is a a kind of almost like an unofficial sequel to last week's. I guess they're all unofficial sequels of each other, aren't they? We're they, we're, they we're are in our podcast, world. That's right. In yeah. terms of the the content and the um, you know subject matter of the film, we um, I think you actually you kind of spoiled it last week in the podcast, but. Um, we were doing Barfly, um, which That's, is, yeah, a, I think uh, that I might have, yeah, I might have said, yeah, I think you yeah, said for last the first week, time, yeah. yeah, um, and Barfly stars, uh, Mickey Rourke, Faye Dunaway, it's, uh, Barbet Schroeder is the, um, director who I had never seen anything else from, um, Bobby Mueller, or Robbie Mueller, uh, did the cinematography, who I have seen other work, he did Paris, Texas, and, uh, some work with, um, uh, Jim Jarmusch and things like that. Uh, he's yeah, lots of, lots of Jim's films. I mean, he's um, done, I almost want to say, I think maybe half a dozen. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. he shot a lot of Lars Van Trier's, or at least a couple of Lars films. Yes, yeah. um, and then retired I mean, in, I think, the early 2000s and just yep, recently Yep, with Coffee died. and Cigarettes. Yep, yeah, Coffee and Cigarettes. I think he died. Or 2018, sorry. Yeah, sadly. But yeah, I mean, some really fantastic films. I mean, Alec, not that we'll get into it more, but just, yeah, Alex Cox's Repo Man, Wim yep. Winders, Paris, Texas, To Live and Die in L.A., Friedkin. You've got Down by Law. That's Jermush. You've got Dead Man with uh, Johnny Depp. That's Jim Jermush, Black and White. Mm-hmm. Coffee and Cigarettes, I think, is also beautifully shot black and white film. That's another one of Jim's. Ghost Dog, which I actually love and have considered uh, selecting at some point. Uh, mm-hmm. That's another mm-hmm. Jermush film. So, yeah, um, this, this guy's got some heavy-duty credits under his belt. Yes, yeah, and he's a fantastic, I mean, he, he, it's interesting, um, and I think we are going to be doing a lot of comparing and contrasting to uh, our last episode um, yeah. with uh, Fat City, just because yeah. not only is, is again, the subject matter is, is somewhat similar. Um, it feels connected, the, right? The, I'm, the, I was right, kind of, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, they, they are, and they, they, you know, just even the, the atmosphere of them is very similar. Um but before, but not only that, but I also think that Connie Hall's work on Fat City and um, Robbie Miller's work on this, uh, on Barfly, uh, is actually uh-huh. very, very similar as well. They're both kind of like this gritty. Yeah. Um, they yeah. definitely feel like related films. Well, like yeah. so, so yeah. we're gonna get into all that, and, and but I'm I'm happy that you saw that too because it was it was kind of an intuitive reaction that I had. You know, I had mm-hmm. never seen Fat City. When I watched, when I was watching the film for uh, our last episode, that I I just had this like intuitive. This was like, whoa! This film really, really reminds me of Barfly in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, and I hadn't seen it in a while, so it mm-hmm. was kind of this very vague. You know, it was just it was like kind of like the impression that I was receiving from Fat City tonally really reminded me of this one. But before we get into all of that nitty gritty, I always, you know, how I always like to start. I was, yeah, and, yeah, and this is like experiences <laughs> and well and it's especially cool to me right because um I, I want you to go first but you know it's it had been a while since i'd seen this film but i i saw this film you know for the first time it was released in 87 i did not see it at the theater at 11 years old uh who knows where it even was playing uh probably had a less than wide release but i probably saw this like on hbo or something you know two years later right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i probably saw this in like maybe 89 or so now if you recall i had selected rumblefish for a previous film so this is now my second 80s kind of art film starring mickey rourke and so, with something to do with Francis Ford Coppola. Although this one is very, very vaguely to do with Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so for anybody out there keeping score, if you're, if you're trying to put a beat on <laughs> inspiration, you know, like, what's the theme of inspirational films for me? Well, yeah. th- this might yeah. help. But, okay, we'll get into that later. So you, this is the first time you'd seen the film. I'm, I'm really curious to hear about your impression of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So I saw, I've seen it twice now. I watched it two nights in a row just for preparing for this. Um, mm-hmm. 
but yeah, this was the, it honestly, like I really, I mean, we've talked about this at length before, um, about how I really love movies that kind of are just like ambling, you know, Mm -hmm. plotless vignettes of, of like almost like a character study, you know? Um, and I, I, when we were talking about this before, I, I sort of said that it reminded me in a weird way, but there's even less plot in this of like the long goodbye. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very similar to fat city. Um, sort of honestly reminds me a little bit of like PTAs, some of PTAs movies as well, uh, which Mm. isn't surprising. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure PTA has seen this, but like, uh, for example, the, his most recent one, licorice, licorice pizza, which again, thematically not very similar, but just kind of that, that like aimless wandering meandering plot about, and, and, you know, not, it's quite lighthearted the whole movie like it's not there's nothing um that is really again we talked about this last week too with with fat city but there's nothing super depressing about it there's nothing like it's not like they're living in great circumstances the circumstances that they're yeah. living in are pretty shit but and it could be sad right like this yeah, is they another could, you one could of easily those, do this as like a you, depressing you right know. i mean it's like you're, you've, you like your characters are all alcoholics yeah almost all of them are alcoholics there's like total dysfunctional relationships there's violence there's you know poverty there's Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) i I mean uh the people are living in this totally depressed environment these are totally checked out unrealized unactuated actualized sorry characters and Mm -hmm. gosh you you could have done this in such a way that would have been one of those like hallmark after school special like see boys and girls this is why you should never drink alcohol that's bad okay and no exactly and that's that's (laughs) what i mean is that you could like so many of these movies that are of similar subject matter aren't fun to watch at all because it's people with their lives falling apart and they're you know either drunk or or constantly high or something in an apartment and they're it's just miserable and you're just kind of like not that that is a bad, not you know, not that movies have to be positive and, and fun the whole time, but there is something really charming about watching like twenty drunks in a bar just all you know have this routine of like oh we're gonna go outside and watch the fight again and, and it kind of yeah. you know the movie begins and ends in that exact same way which yep and it doesn't seem like it's looking down on the characters at all like it it sort of begins and ends you know it opens up and and they're fighting Eddie and uh, Henry are are fighting in the um, alleyway and then it ends pretty much with the exact same sequence of shots just kind of saying like here's the cycle of life and um but again and it's that's... not like depressing it's almost kind of charming in a way like these yeah. people have found their niche like they've found their crowd and no matter how many times henry and eddie fight you know henry's never kicked out of the bar and well he is asked to leave at the beginning but he's never like a band from the bar for life even though eddie and henry completely hate each other and of, yeah. and so just to, to tag in here, and Eddie, of course, is probably Frank Stallone, yes. Sylvester's yeah. brother's best role, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> you guessed it, Frank Stallone, as Norm Macdonald would say. And and I just you got <laughs> you got because but but I uh, so I love that you appreciate that about it because that's that's what I appreciate about it. I think as well. So I mean, it sounds like I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you enjoyed the film, just like Definitely, on a yeah. on a on yeah. a fun. Okay, I was because I was curious. I mean, you know, it 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 seems like a film that is pretty niche, at least to me, right? Um, that no, I, yeah, I not e- super famous, not like super well known either. Um, I could easily imagine someone not getting this film, not liking this film, thinking this film is boring, or you know, I mean, I, I could easily if somebody if if you said, hey, man, I. I didn't get it. I didn't, you know, this just didn't jive with me. I I could I'd be like, yeah, I I understand. It, it's probably got a very small audience, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything else? Like, what else stood out to you about it? Uh, I'm just curious. It's like, especially because I know, just from having talked a little bit about this before earlier, you don't have a ton of uh, exposure to Bukowski. So of yes, course, yeah, yeah, Bukowski wrote the script for this film. Mm-hmm. Bukowski was a writer well before this film. Um, some of you may know, and but, yeah, uh, so he's and and Mickey Rourke is sort of playing Bukowski's alter ego that it's takes correct. place kind of like this anti-hero of of Bukowski's that is yes. in a lot of his novels, somewhat um, an, uh, somewhat autobiographical, but yeah. not entirely. It's kind of like a a fictionalized, you know, a pseudo fictionalized kind of like alter ego, I guess might be, mm-hmm. but but does contain a lot of autobi- autobiographical elements. 
Right. So because I think, you know, a lot of people might come into this film with the baggage of like, oh, this is Bukowski. Okay, you know, but you didn't have that really. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's kind of. It's difficult to not know who Bukowski is. I mean, he's like sure, a, he's sure. kind of like a, a you know Hemingway. Patron saint of yeah, he's like, like the patron saint of drinky of like drunk poets. Yes, you know, yeah, yeah. like that kind of yeah, that very classic seventies eighties yeah, like it's barfly really. Right, I mean, that's that's why it's called what it is. Um, and so I think that the not knowing a ton though, and not having read a ton of his work, and not really being all that familiar with Bukowski or how he was in real life or something like that. Yeah, kind of, it, it allowed me to sort of enter the movie with like a very blank slate. Yeah. Um, and to really enjoy Mickey Rourke's performance as well. Um, I mean, he's so, he's like hamming it up, but it's so authentic to, to Bukowski. And I, I described it to you earlier. It's, it's sort of, it's like kind of almost this cadence of like a Bob Dylan song where you know it's like to my near friends and it's like <laughs> that sort of sounds like that's know, so like, funny that, like that that line is, is like I mean for people who like this film that's like you know to my friends to yeah. all my friends that's like the you just like that encapsulates this entire film in that yeah. one line yeah. you know so it's funny that you you pulled that out to use right now well I'm curious you know I'm curious about that so uh, specifically, let's talk about Rourke's performance. We're going to kind of jump all over as usual, everybody. So just hang on tight. But mm-hmm. yes. you know, but you mentioned Rourke's performance. I mean, so obviously, his early work had a big influence on me, and that's why I one of the reasons why I picked Rumblefish. It's his performance in that film, which is so profoundly different than this film. He's so reserved and internal. And Rumblefish, and here, like you kind of hinted at, he's kind of almost hamming it up, mm-hmm. but uh, but you feel like it worked, right? Did you? Because it is, a, it is a. Definitely. I feel like yes. he really yeah. walks a tightrope there, right? Where it kind of is a caricature, but somehow the character caricature still works. So your impression of that? What what were you like when you when you when you first see Mickey work kind of walk and uh, talk on screen? What was your thoughts? Like, I mean, it's it's just so charming. Like you can't help but kind of think that it, it establishes the tone of the film very well and it kind of goes back to how we were describing it that it's not this depressing slog of like you know these people with miserable lives and I think a lot of that is owing to the fact that Mickey Rourke plays this character who is just so completely content with everything that happens to him <laughs> yeah and like you know and he gets into a knife fight with that guy in the apartment and it's like his reaction is like oh uh, I hope he was alive. <laughs> it's like it's just this great, this great kind of attitude about about life. And, well, and um, he has heart, right? Like the yeah. guy. I feel like the 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 role is played in a way where, I, I I mean, I think that even though there's kind of this, I mean, I guess you know, existentially, right? For me, when I kind of look at this, I'm like, oh, this is such like an this has something so beautiful to say, kind of existentially, because the film, it's like. It just embraces the fact that life is has a lot of suffering in it. And but you can still find joy even in that suffering. And it's almost like a Zen like kind of examination of life, this film. Because it's like, well, yeah, you know, so you know, it, it sucks to have a job. It sucks not to have a job. It sucks mm-hmm. to, you know, it's like life is life is just one, you know, kind of bittersweet if you're lucky moment you know and a lot of them are just pure suffering moments but it's like all these little tiny pieces of beauty that the character that mickey rourke's character is able to see in spite of all of that or maybe because of all of that so it's kind of like well yeah life's suffering but you can still find joy even in that and so the character is never like I'm out like like fully checked out or like I'm out of here. I don't want to live. I don't there's mm-hmm. nothing worth living for. Like it's never any of that. It's almost kind of like I'm on the outside looking in. Life is surreal and crazy. You're all nuts. I'm mm-hmm. nuts. But it's kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> and we're all along for the ride. And know, we're all along for yeah. the ride, right? None of us get out of here alive, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I think he did a good job. That's kind of my feeling on his performance. Yeah, and then I mean Faye Dun- it's and it's I think it it totally plays opposite Faye Dunaway's performance perfectly because she I think plays it not like a character caricature at all. She plays mm. it super authentic and really grounded and and kind of down to earth and and, and more tragic. This, 
Yeah, exactly. And yet she still is saying at the same time, very, very charming and like very, you know, even these characters that have such clearly very deep issues in their lives and things like that are still so um, enthralling and, and so fun to just watch. Um, mm. And I think that that's kind of the big thing that, and it's such a fine line to walk along. And I think it, takes a lot of, of like a you know a lot of talent to to present a movie like this um, where it can be really tough to to explore these kind of destitute um, characters that have nothing mm. going for them that spend all day in a bar drinking and things like that but at the same time still not make that exhausting to watch <clears throat> and and not make that something that's completely you know just again this like miserable depressing, uh, experience but to take that and it 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 is dependent on every single person that's involved right like it's dependent yeah. on the director and how they portray the scenes it's dependent dependent on the actors and how they play the characters because again if written. mickey rourke i think was playing this less um heightened if he was just playing this and he was just trying to like you know authentically do it as as just a kind of a regular guy and didn't have the cadence of bukowski and that and that kind of speech pattern that he had and just sort of you know played all these moments completely straight i don't think it would really work i think that the movie would would be Bog a, a, down a, just it would it would yeah it would it would it would um just wouldn't work as well you know one of the things you 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 mentioned uh faye dunaway you know i i feel like i almost have this vague memory when i first saw the film and i and i had it again most definitely when i saw it now I'm almost, I, I'm like kind of shocked that she took this role. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I, uh, seriously. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, she's a legend, right? Mm -hmm. You know, e ever since, uh, you know, Bonnie and Clyde in 67, yeah, she's yeah. kind of been a legend. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I think in the early 70s, she kind of, you know, had a little bit of a downturn in her career. She didn't have any big hits, but then... You know, before this film, you have what Chinatown, and I think was it seventy four. You, you even you know Sidney Pollock's Three Days of the Condor in seventy five, which I think was a a, a big hit. Mm -hmm. um, and she kind of right? garnered. I Network, mean, there's kind of a disputed Patty idea of her reputation, um, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I, yeah. I, I mean, you've got you've got her like I mean, she's a movie star, dude. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like like bonafide, no holds barred, no question like movie star and i i was just kind of surprised to see her in such a in such a role frankly i mean like pleasantly surprised that's pretty awesome yeah, yeah definitely and and um, again yeah there, there was this kind of reputation around her that she was again it's disputed that she was tough to work with um some people oh. say that she was other people say that that she was just super committed to like that i think uh what were the stories there? I don't know too much, you know, I don't know too much like from kind of that like People magazine kind of yeah. gossip rumor stuff. Yeah. I don't know that much about her. Kinda. What is the, what are the... I know, I mean, I've heard um, like John Huston talk about her and say that like while she can be a, a pain in the ass, she's like the most dedicated, hardworking Well, Houston thought with. every actor was a pain in the ass yes. almost. Yeah, that is true. So yeah. I don't know how much... <laughs> but yeah, he basically you know. just described her that, yeah, he said that she was hardworking and that no other actor he'd ever met had put in the amount of work that she she did to her roles. I mean, it kind of reminds me, completely unrelated, but like, of, of, and I don't know this if this is what Faye Dunaway did, but, you know, I know Sigourney Weaver, who is not, doesn't have a reputation of being tough to work with, but I know that she, like, shows up to set with just binders and binders of work, mm. like, character work that she's done. Yeah. Um, and so I can imagine that Dunaway's the same thing, where she's, she's just kind of this, apparently she was very much of a perfectionist and very involved in the way that she was shot, not in terms of a... Like, you know, a lot of modern actors say they can't be shot from below the chin or something to hide their, their double chin or something. Well, she was very, very involved in, in like making sure that her character was represented on screen as yeah. she thought it should be, which is, which is neat. I well, mean, it's, it's fascinating. And, and she might have had, you know, so there's, so to bring a little bit of that into this film, you know, I, I think it was an unscripted moment, as I understand it. This, that moment where she, um, is in like her apartment building with mm -hmm. uh Henry Mickey Rourke's character and and we see a little leg there and they're kind of yeah, talking kind of about how she shot, I, yeah. I I think that was something that she 
had asked to add or just to something to give her character a little bit of glamour. Yes. Um, because she obviously is dressed so down in this Mm -hmm. film, Mm -hmm. um, made to look so kind of, you know, beaten down. But, um, but well, I mean, look as an actor, you, you, you know, and this is like, I mean, I, I think every actor who's ever had any amount of success has had, you have to deal with this and balance it. It's like you, you have to manage how, like you have to, I'm trying to figure out the words to say this. Like you never know how you're going to be treated on set. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and there's so many moving parts to a film, but at the end of the day, like you're the person in front of the camera, like you're what the audience is going to see. If the writing sucks, guess what? You look like crap. If the directing sucks, guess what? You look like crap right? If you're not mm-hmm. lit well, if the DP doesn't do their job, and I don't mean lit well as in like a glamour shot, I mean, you know, you, you're going to not look good, right? If other actors aren't performing well, like you're not going to look good. So, I mean, if, if you're really on top of your game as an actor, which she clearly was, um, you have to pay attention to all that stuff and you can't just leave it to chance and you can't just always assume that it's going to be uh, taken care of perfectly. So I think, you know, really successful and actors who are really good at their craft understand a, a lot of the filmmaking process and definitely work to kind of, if, if something doesn't feel like it's being done correctly, uh, they step in and say something about it. And yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. some, some other people could perceive that as being a pain to work with. But you have to, you know? That's why you no, see exactly. people like, you know, that's why, you know, you see successful duos, you know, like maybe or, you know, actor director combos work together over and over again. Because once you like, you know, you can actually like trust that. OK, yeah, the film is going to be is going to be built correctly. Oh, and, and I, and I, yeah. And I don't have to worry that, the you know, about all these other things. And I can just focus on acting. I don't have to worry if the film's going to be well-directed or well-lit or whatever, you know. I can trust the other actors are going to be strong. The ca- rest of the cast will be strong, et cetera, et cetera, whoever they end up being. Um, but anyway, not to digress too much here. But So I always take these rumors of like, oh, an actor was hard to work with. I mean, especially when they clearly have a lot of great performances. Mm-hmm. I always take that with a grain of salt, and I'm like, eh, well, I mean, it's, it's actually interesting that Ethan Hawke had a really interesting comment on it recently um, where he talked about how, like, the method, for example, how a lot of people oh, have complaints the about, method. you know, like, the method. Oh, yeah. and he was like, you know, it, it, he, he said that there's there's a level of obviously, like, any actor is going to do their role the way they, they see doing their role like the way that they best see doing it. Right. And yeah. that, you know, that you can call Daniel Day-Lewis tough to work with or, or because, you know, he wants to be called by his character's name or whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to be the one to go tell him to not do that because he's lauded as a fantastic actor. Sure. Right? Like it's like proof's the results the speak for themselves. Um, well, and the, the proof's in the pudding. And look, you've got yeah, somebody exactly. like Daniel Day-Lewis where every performance is just, he knocks it out of the park. Then you get somebody like Jared Leto, who yes. tries to do the same type of thing, <laughs> yeah. and the proof is not in the pudding there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, inconsistent, one could say at best. Uh, mm-hmm. He has had a couple performances that I think that were pretty good, but he's also, you know, he, the bulk of his performances are not exactly outstanding. And he's mm-hmm. another, per, you know, he's another actor that's been, you know, stories, you know, all over the place about his, the wackiness that he's done on set. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately the proof's in the pudding. But look, if, if, if the, if the output is there, if the performance is there, hey, whatever gets you there, man. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, so let's go back a little bit um, and talk a little bit more about the cinematography, because I know that's something that, you know, it's a major focus for you. And kind of like Mickey Rourke's performance for me was, I think, the thing that really stood out to me the most, especially when I first saw this film, you know. I And I didn't know who Bukowski was at all, by the way, too, when I saw this film at like 13 or whatever. I had mm-hmm. no idea who the hell he was. Um, so I think it was Rourke's uh, performance more than anything that really stood out to me. But I know that, you know, cinematography is one of the things that sticks out to you at first. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your impressions there, you know, your initial impressions. Yeah, I mean, Robbie Miller, again, is is this cinematographer who, who um, 
really just has this naturalistic sense, but is so good at heightening the kind of and accentuating like the natural um, look of of a space or of just like an image using color or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, you could so easily make the you know the interior of a bar look really really boring um, because. You know, bars are usually not the most exciting looking places. <laughs> yeah, um, not usually. And yet, yeah. the the way that that they lit, you know, where they, you've got this like overhead light that just kind of shines this green hue down on all the all the patrons, and it like looks like it's making them physically sick almost. And then the interiors of the apartment that are lit so just beautifully, so that they look like almost like portraits. Um, you know, mm. the one shot of Faye Dunaway when it's kind of she's framed within that kind of door within the, the room not the door but the opening in the wall between the bedroom and the living room mm. and she's it's kind of perfectly square on that that opening yeah um, that doorway and she's just kind of standing right in the middle of it and it's this long shot and you can see her head to toe and it's this really like it looks like a portrait that you'd see in like a you know a national geographic on some you know like portraits of life in yeah in downtrodden america or something right and um and so he's really, really an exceptional, like he, his framing is always incredibly well done. The way that yeah. he, you know, frames an image and frames characters and lights them, um, is really, really serves the story, but it doesn't, you know, overrepresent itself. Interesting thing too, is that they actually invented the Kino flow light for this movie. Um, Whoa, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the bathroom moments, um, because it was tough to light, um, the two of them and in, in, in this tiny little bathroom because of course these were these they were, were shot on location real, yeah they were real apartments they weren't sets yeah um, and so they actually invented the the kino flow light which if you don't work in film is basically just a a more powerful more consistent and nicer looking fluorescent tube so it's in the shape of like a fluorescent tube and it can be inserted in those fixtures and things like that yeah. and they're quite commonly found today on film sets but um, back then they were you know they quite literally invented them for this so yeah imagine so, like a bank of like very high i think what are usually i mean they they're of different sizes but like four or five uh in like a bank yes um, yeah and you can kind of position them they're not they're they're usually quite thin so that it's yep. like a pretty easy light to position on a ceiling or something like that in a tight space yeah um, but again i mean i like that sort of thing too i like i like it when a dp is sort of not only doing really great artistry with the images but also furthering the actual technical side of it um that's a wonderful a piece of like trivia that. yeah um, i didn't yeah i had no idea of that and and i just want to add because you'd mentioned it you know that the that the necessity that brought about the invention of the kino flow was that they were shooting in real bathrooms mm -hmm. and i think i do just want to you know because it's it's not just um how something's framed or how something's lit but it's the locations that you choose to shoot in that obviously have a huge impact on how a film looks and it's one of the things that especially stands out to me about this film now uh having been and actually worked in very close to a lot of these locations where they shot down in the kind of macarthur park area of los angeles mm -hmm. is just how like beautiful these locations are that they chose to shoot in i mean we're on location in la i think la is such an important part of this film the same way you know stockton uh in fat city was such a vital part of that film and if had they chosen to shoot that in other locations i just don't think it would have worked anywhere near as well i think the same holds true for this Mm -hmm. If you Absolutely. know, yeah. if you know Bukowski, you know, you know that uh, L.A., it, it would have been vital to shoot here in L.A. Um, and I just uh, think it's such a fascinating, not only area, but but the like you said that the, you know, incorporating location and it, it almost kind of feels like this this like vignette or tableau of like a time lost. You know, this was mm -hmm. made in 1987 and mm -hmm. yet it feels very classic in its in its like sensibilities and in the locations and it's all these run down apartments that were likely built in the 30s and 40s or 20s um, yeah yeah and, or 20s and, used... and and it like this movie could very easily if you just swapped out some cars and, and made them you know yeah you know cars from the 30s this movie could very easily be set in that era and i think that's intentional like this kind of era of this classical novelist who drinks a ton and is is like you know so indebted into their work that they they just leave society altogether and become this kind of you know, as again as the title suggests this barfly um 
And so I think that that's something that's really fascinating too. And I think that the location fits in so well with that. Because as you described um, to me earlier, that these locations like MacArthur Park was a really kind of glamorous, beautiful area. And yeah, then the it kind tens, of got really 20s, run down, thir- right? It, yeah, in the yeah. 10s, 20s, 30s. Yeah, like the West Lake, like West Lake, MacArthur Park area, which just, you know, for people who aren't super familiar, it's kind of... Uh, it's a little bit west and north of the downtown of Los Angeles, which it doesn't have much going on now. And it's kind of, you know, south and east of Hollywood, I mm-hmm. guess, if those, you know. So it's kind of, it's it's just a little bit over east from central L.A. Sort but, of, yeah. Is it sort of near uh, Silver Lake? Uh, it is south. So okay, south of Silver. Okay, it, it's it's a it's almost mostly directly south of Silver Lake. But right. t- But today it's an area. It's a high crime area. Um, basically, yeah, there were really beautiful high end uh, luxury apartment buildings or condos that were built here, and that's a lot of that architecture that you see. Right, that kind of. You can tell that they're used to, which I think is so beautiful to this film, that there's like a royalty and exile feeling almost. That there's like, you can sense that there was once something there mm-hmm. and now it's been let to rot. Or it's de- time is kind of, you know, is disintegrating these things, which is kind of what's happening to all these characters, right? Time and drink. And is glamour is exited. Yeah. And, 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 right. But, but you can still sense though that there's like, there's like this royalty and exile kind of feeling like that Mickey Rourke, you know, almost has the, this like untouchable part about his character that's kind of royalty. And Faye Dunaway most definitely does. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's so such a beautiful symbolic use of this of the location. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think like most of the money is my understanding that people kind of started to migrate west. Right, and so you get Beverly Hills, Brentwood, etc. So a lot of people who had money, who were would have been living in these very expensive locations uh, in the teens, twenties, thirties, maybe forties, they left, and then unfortunately, this area became a very high crime and and sadly low income and high poverty level area. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, yeah and yeah, I yeah, there's there's just something really. I mean, I always find a location that is storied and that has history to it even if it's made up for the movie um but seeing you know a rundown apartment building that clearly has a lot of history to it is deeply deeply more interesting than just being presented a you know world of rubble or like a you know that there's this kind of this middle ground like you said where it's like clearly these these this area was was glamorous back in the day and the area perfectly encapsulates the people that now live there, which is all these kind of like people who have kind of reached a dead end and just spend their nights in these bars that back, you know, 40 years ago probably had some pretty high profile people coming in to see jazz shows. And, yeah. um, and so it's, it's just deeply fascinating. It's like the people that kind of time left behind in a way. Yeah. yeah. And I, but, and, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful use of, you know, like I said, like, I think you're kind of hinting at like a world building and, mm-hmm. you know, sure. Mm-hmm. Whether you, you use something that's preexisting or you uh, create something like, you know, a movie like Blade Runner, which of course is a film that, that created, used production design to create such a beautiful world that was so integral to the story. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me, do you know what it kind of reminds me of? Uh, like the interiors in this film, which are real interiors. They weren't dressed up, uh, mm-hmm. is my understanding. So these apart, you know, you, you look at the interiors of these apartment buildings and you're just like, how in the world could anybody live in something like this? Um, uh, sadly, it, it seems like people really did that those were real places. You know, yeah. what it kind of reminds me of is the interiors in, um, a lot of the interiors in especially in the beginning of um oh 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 come on uh leon the professional mm, yeah where like yeah. natalie portman's building remember mm-hmm. that the yeah. like the the texture it's almost like luke Besson was like trying to recreate almost you know i could imagine like the the texture in this film and the interiors in this film i don't know that just like jumped out at me i was like gosh that's another film that the texture seems so similar yeah yeah um, yeah, so I, I don't, you know, so for somebody who loves Los Angeles and loves Los Angeles history, that was one more thing for me that really jumped out at this film is how LA this film feels, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of like how, when we were doing the, um, the, uh, the fly, um, 
and I, I said that it's difficult to describe to someone who hasn't lived here, but the fly just feels so Toronto. Oh yeah, and there was another it, an, an enemy, or no? What was the? Yeah, enemy as well. Yeah, enemy, or yeah, enemy, the Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, yeah, because I think you said the same thing there, and I think, you know, uh, and that's just something that's like, well, hey, you know, uh, you're obviously you live in Toronto, and that speaks to you very personally. I think for people who have a love for Los Angeles or who live in Los Angeles. You know, this film has the potential, at least, to do the same, even though I don't live in these areas. I have worked in a lot of these areas, but uh, but just in general, yeah, I, I kind of have this huge affinity for, like, real L.A. films, you know, mm-hmm. that were shot on location um, and that really accentuate and highlight the city. Yeah. I think, I think when I was a kid, I probably watched this, and I was just like, whoa, like, what is this world, you know? like. And so you said you didn't see it in theaters you you nope. must so you watched to watch it on like a, a television yep, yeah. yep 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 i watched it on yep so i watched it chopped and cropped and you know mm-hmm. um on hbo or something you know when i was a kid but here i am like living in missouri so imagine it's like i'm yeah you know like 13 mystical land out kid. west <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'm like living in missouri and i'm like suburban you know and uh you know tract house i mean just imagine the most suburban homogenous environment you can possibly imagine and then, you know, a movie like this pops up and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, my little brain is like, what? What is yeah. this world? Yeah. Who are these people? You know, and uh, it, it, it's just mesmerizing, you know, to kind of see such a radically different way of living and thinking and existing, you know, um, which was something that I, I feel like I really got, you know, I looked for that so much in in films uh, or from films when I was a kid. And I think that's that's exactly why, because my real life was so homogenous and safe uh, Mm -hmm. that to Mm -hmm. get to experience other ways of existing um, and other places, this was like my window into that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, And it's not like even, you know, the movie doesn't explore like crime or anything like that nope, either nope. it just kind of i mean the worst thing that happens in this movie that involves the police is that they steal some corn um, but <laughs> which is it, so crazy like yeah, yeah. i mean it's like how random was that what i'm curious like when you were watching it you're just like a where the hell does corn grow in la like yeah, the fast my first that was that was my first thought i was like okay this film's not taking place in the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, when there was agriculture in Los Angeles. This is taking place in 87. What yeah. the hell What the hell is there a corn patch doing here? Like, you know. Yeah, this random parking lot corn patch. Yeah. <laughs> and if you um, watch... And I, and I if, mean, even just the way that, like, the police respond to that and the paramedics, like, all of these different characters are just so... Oh, the paramedics like almost, cracked me this... up. Oh, wait, let's, can we stop? Let's talk, like, so the paramedics are hysterical, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and it's, but it doesn't it almost feel like, like, a, it, it feels kind of like a Seinfeld bit at that point, like, in a good way, where it's <laughs> it like, does. you've got these, these paramedics yeah. that keep showing up, and when they show up again, and he's like, what like are you guys always doing got the morning a c- shift and the night shift? Yeah, the guy's <laughs> always got it, like, a cigarette, and his, you know, like, that one guy's got sunglasses on, I think, or something, yeah. or, right? And his, and like, collars popped, yeah. <laughs> his collars popped, and they're just like... They're just, it's the same paramedics that come in like three or, you know, whatever, two or three times during the film. Yeah, I, it cracks yeah. me up. And um, and that's what I, there is definitely humor and a lot of it in the film, I think. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's definitely what, and I think you really, you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, the film is clearly not judgmental about its characters and it doesn't look down on their characters um, and it doesn't have pity. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, these poor characters which a lot of movies that deal with kind of this type of poverty these days do. Like yeah. I won't, I won't, you know, name any name specifics names. just to just to, you know, not to speak ill of of modern filmmakers. But, oh, you can speak ill. Go but, ahead. Yeah, that's we, true. We can speak but I mean, Ill. I just noticed that there's like, um, I guess I'll say one for example, like like Nomadland, for example, just because it was so big um, yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, like that seems to have like just a ton of like pity and almost just like patronizes. Mm. All of I don't think characters. I've seen it. I don't um, think I've seen that one. Yeah. yeah, it just kind of deals with poverty in a very like, oh my goodness, like how these poor people. And same with um, there was one that Ron Howard did last year too. I can't remember what it was called. Hillbilly Elegy, I think. Oh, and again, I, I, it just I, kind of takes this like this just patronizing yeah. <laughs> look at, at like any poverty. And whereas this, to me, this kind of really lines up with what I know about Bukowski's sensibilities, which is 
if you were to present this life to like an upper middle class or upper class, you know, Beverly Hills, Pacific Palisades type of person and show them this, they would be like horrified. They'd be like, oh my gosh. And yeah. yet Bukowski's like, hey, if you don't laugh, you cry. Like, Well, you know, and he's like, like oh, hey, I, I wouldn't take your it. life if you gave it to me. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like, it's like this to me is all, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's almost like telling a a um a low-end joke at like a high-class dinner party mm. where you just nobody at the party is going to get it because they just don't you know they don't look at life that way whereas money is like all that's important to them and having you know this this well, shelter and, and things like that whereas this guy's just kind of like uh you know henry just has no he's just gonna float where he floats and and figure out things well as and it let's comes be at him, right and let's be honest like you know well first of all too i mean uh goes well maybe it goes without saying i don't know i'll say it though but i mean you know bukowski really was an extraordinary writer and especially mm -hmm. poet and it's clear that uh that he had you know uh there was a lot more there than just you know somebody who got drunk and got into fights or whatever i mean nobody can write the way he wrote and not be filled with something really extraordinary mm -hmm. um his humanity was huge um and and that's just because there's just no way it couldn't be because you read a lot of his writing and it's just some of the most beautiful stuff i've ever read and i highly recommend you check out uh his poetry especially um his i think his his novels are are worth a read too but just especially his poetry mm. is really there's some extraordinary beauty and that you know people are always i guess it's always interesting or people are kind of fascinated that's that so much beauty can be um, I don't know if hidden is this not, hidden's not the right word, but uh, but it's almost like you can like there is beauty to be found everywhere. There's beauty to be found way. everywhere, and I get and somehow people are surprised by that. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, but 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 so that's part of this story, and I think this is part of this film, and it's you know trying to convey that symbolically um, that that the beauty of his poetry, even though his poetry is kind of about you know these quote-unquote low-life, you know, things or, you know, that day-to-day -day life and, you know, living on Skid Row or, you know, being a drunk with no job or whatever, but there's still all this beauty and, and wisdom um, and heart. Um, but uh, I was just trying to say, um, there's a lot of truth here too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of, like, what he says about uh, this film kind of says about life isn't maybe wrong. You know, maybe they're onto something that, you know, killing yourself 60, 80 hours a week to make some paper, maybe there it's not the end all be all of the world. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, um, you, you know, know I they might get, not be wrong. Personal, there, there's like the, there's an element to which so many people, when I, because uh, I, of course, just got back from the, like this three and a half month trip this summer. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people were like, well, why wouldn't you put that money away? And then, you know, you, you could save up and, and, you know, do, and it's like, I'm not living my life to, to slave away in a cubicle for, you know, until I'm 70 and then have, you know, maybe 10, 15 years to myself. Like, right. I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy the things that I want to enjoy as they come to me. And well, and, and you um, also saw, a, you know, and I'm guessing that you also were exposed to, cause you, I, again, not to put words in your mouth, but you grew up like middle class, you know, nice, nice, safe place in Canada and Toronto, you know, just like I grew up middle class, nice, safe place in Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, you got to see how a lot of different people in a lot of different countries live. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of different people in a lot of different countries with a lot less material wealth than it, we might have in Canada and the United States. Yeah. Some of us, certainly yeah. not all of us, but... You know, so, so yeah, I'm curious, did you, did you feel any kind of resonance with that, you know, kind no, of? No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, poverty, uh, I think the way that, um, you know, the Western ideal, idea of poverty is very interesting because so often it's almost individualized <laughs> in a way, and, and we're yeah. getting very, very philosophical here for a moment, but That's okay. it's always sort of weirdly individualized, whereas what I noticed overseas was that the kind of you know, if, if someone was really, really, really poor, they were always still with their family, you know, they were always still mm. living with their family, and they always yeah. seemed like there was a lot of just, like, happiness built into that. And I yeah. almost kind of see this as Bukowski kind of 
linking those two ideas, which is just that like, you know, we have obviously such a, a um, you know, all over the world, there's such a, a focus on money and income and, and things like that. And obviously those things in the system that we live in are important. You can't eat without income. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps, you know, it's, it's kind of maybe just a little bit of a unfalsifiable hypothesis in a way of saying like, well, what if that didn't matter? You know, like, like take a look at these people who don't have a lot and yet they're completely content with it. And not to say that you should be happy with, you know, getting scraps, but rather that, like you said, that there's, well, you're not trying to romanticize to be, poverty. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's you're not trying to, to be found everywhere and that, and that, but there's, um, but, yeah. But I just wanted to add, you know, cause you, you, as we kind of talk through some of these things, it kind of makes me think of more, you know, it's, um, I think what, uh, what the film is trying to say in some ways, maybe, and again, I, you know, it's like, not trying to romanticize alcoholism because that's obviously clearly a very serious disease that affects a lot of people in really horrible ways mm-hmm. and not just the sufferers of alcoholism but their families and friends and their communities i mean that's you know that's not a joke and that's a serious real thing not that i'm trying to have some disclaimer here i'm, I'm just saying there's there's other facets and kind of viewpoints to to look at this through or from you know and that is one of them but that there's kind of, it's almost like, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking existentially a little bit, which this film kind of makes me do, is like, it's almost like, yes, there's this suffering. If we, sim- if we take it out of just the literal of like, okay, they're, they're drunks and they're, they're living their lives in bars, but life is kind of suffering and some of us are alienated, but you almost maybe have to kind of embrace that to hold on to your soul, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. keep from so fully selling out that, that, you know, I mean, cause it's, I mean, Hey, be, I've, uh, I've to spent become a suit, in... you know, to, cause it's, cause you do have to, there is kind of a decision that has to be made for most of us, unless you're somehow born into wealth. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, I, uh, and maybe this is what speaks to me on a personal level where it's, you know, I had to. I made a conscious choice at about thirty years of age. It's like I had a very comfortable existence. I lived in a nice, like you know, apartment, and I, um, I made a good living. I had good insurance, and um, and I was like, this is this. I feel completely empty inside when it mm-hmm. comes to what I'm doing with my life. This is miserable. There's no purpose here. Um, I, I'm dying on the inside, even though I have all of these wonderful things externally, you know, I bought like this fun sports car convertible and whatever. Right. But it's like what I'm spending my life doing. This is just, and it's not that I was doing something horrible. Right. It was just not a match for me. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a fit for me. Mm -hmm. And I made the conscious choice. I'm going to do something where it's extremely unlikely. I'm going to make a good living at it, but I am willing to risk being destitute you know and Mm -hmm. and really struggling financially um in order to pursue something i actually care about yeah and i think that's 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 definitely one of these underlying threads which is like and i think that's part of bukowski's life too is just that you know look i'm here to write and uh i want my time to write i don't want to yeah and like where i do that i don't care and I don't want to work a nine to five job and I don't care about cars and name brand clothes and a mm-hmm. fancy house and all this kind of stuff. I want to write and I'm willing to pay for that time to write by foregoing all these other things because they don't mean anything to me anyway. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know. I understand that. And well, I, think I mean, there's it's, a lot it's of again, value it goes there. back to the, 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 the tr- kind of idea of, of traveling too, where it's like I met the two sides of that coin while I was away where there was some people who it's like, Oh yeah, you know, I take two weeks of the year to travel and then I'm, I'm like hard at work, you know, business, like venture <laughs> capitalists and things like that. And they're <laughs> yeah. all like, yeah, you know, I, I do that. And then I, I come travel for, and like, that's my routine. Whereas on the yeah. other hand, you have people who, to literally just, it's like, Hey, I do odd jobs where I am and, mm-hmm. and make enough money to get to the next place. Yeah. And, and it's, you... it's like, they're all, you either live Those to people work always or work seem to much live. more relaxed and much more happy with their lives. And in you know, like I know people who work decades at places and then they get laid off and it's like, yeah, you were just a number at this yeah. company. It's in and what what now, right? What what do you do? And so 
Um, I've never exactly, I, mean, I sort of made a, a similar decision, not that I was in a place of, you know, I, I didn't have like a, a, a great job or anything, but when I was at school, I, I went to U of T for a year and was doing fine and, and was enjoying classes in, in a kind of academic sense. But I also had to make the decision to myself where I was like, do I want to spend four years doing this? spending money to do this, you know, and get a job that I can get with a degree that I will never enjoy, um, just to make sure that I have like a steady income yeah. or do I want to actually pursue the thing that, that I believe will make me happy? You know, it's kind of the quantity versus quality idea, right? Like I would rather live 10 really, really happy years of my life and then disappear you know, I'm saying I'm not going to say die, but but you know, like yeah. in terms of this hypothetical question, yeah. versus spend 80 years, kind of you know, like you said, slaving away and in a nine to five, and uh, hoping that by the time I gra or graduate, by the time I retire, I have enough money put aside to actually do things that I enjoyed, money yeah. or energy too, right? Or even you <laughs> yeah. know, how many people die at their their desk from a heart attack at 55 and it's like right geez, yeah like, you know none of us none of us is guaranteed any amount of time or any comfort or anything else yeah. regardless of what you have and so to put all your eggs in the basket of security um you might be sadly surprised um mm -hmm. that that even when you do put all your eggs in that security basket you still don't have it yeah life mm -hmm. is fragile and life always involves suffering, and it's your choice to either embrace it or try to run away from it. But mm -hmm. I don't think you can outrun it. But on that note, on that happy note, yes, yeah. <laughs> life is suffering. No, yeah. but life well, is suffering, but that doesn't mean that you can't still find joy even in that. Uh, all right. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Cullen, thanks again, as always, man, for a wonderful conversation. I, I'm really, I'm, I'm happy that you like the film, man. That always makes me happy i'm mm -hmm. glad that you enjoyed it i'm glad that i was able to share one of my favorites from my childhood with you and hopefully with our listeners here um if you've not watched it and you've somehow still made it to the end of this hour-long podcast and <laughs> and you've not watched it it's still very well worth watching even after having heard a lot about it from us it's yeah. uh because yeah. it because plot it's not like there's any spoilers for this film. yes yeah, there's, there's no, no plot, plot yeah. so there's no it's spoiler it's it is spoiler proof which is fantastic all right well until next time everybody thank you so much cullen thank you mm, thank you yeah take care everybody until next time bye bye mm -hmm.